So James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. James writes, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he does, has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. May God bless the reading of His Word. Father, as we come this morning now to the time in which we explain the written Word of God, I pray that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of illumination and instruction, would guide our minds and open up our hearts and cause us to believe the truth of this Word and provoke us to obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I put this sermon together this week, the, mind, the thought that kept coming to mind is a light faith. A light faith. What I mean, I don't mean an L-I-G-H-T faith. I mean an L-I-T-E faith. Because we live in the day of the diet, don't we? Everyone is going on a diet or is on a diet or is coming off of a diet. We live in the day of the diet. I don't hear anybody, there isn't anybody who is not talking about a diet of some type in some way. Just about in every circle that we go into. Furthermore, as a result of our lack of self-control, predominantly as a nation, and our refusal to exercise, drug companies have become billionaires by coming up with the next little pill that promises you that you can eat whatever you want and not exercise and still lose weight. Isn't that a great pill? I mean, don't you wish they'd come up with that pill? When I was in college in Florida, I had a friend of mine that was, he was always into the next fad, always in the next fad. And one day I saw him popping these pills and swallowing them. I said, what are you doing? He said, these are barley and hyssop pills. And I said, why are you taking them? And he said, because you can take these and drink water and it expands in your stomach and you can eat whatever you want and fat cells cling to it and you lose weight, you don't got to exercise. And I said, hmm, we'll see. And they didn't work. There's a new one out now called Leptomine or something, you know. It had this advertisement. When was a diet pill worth $175? When you've tried everything else and nothing else will work, try this. It won't work either. We live in the day of the diet. Everybody wants a quick fix. Nobody wants to eat less, eat better, and exercise. Listen, I am the king of the yo-yo diet. I have... My fat do I have my fat wardrobe and my skinny wardrobe, all right? I'm the king of it. And I'm here to tell you, I've tried it all. And the only thing that works, that really works, is to eat right, eat less, and exercise. It's hard work to lose weight. Well, not only has the drug companies gotten on the bandwagon, so has the food companies. And those of you that know me well, you know my love of ding-dongs. I'm here to tell you, I don't like light ding-dongs. <laughs> light ding-dongs don't taste like ding-dongs. If I'm going to eat a ding-dong, I want a ding-dong. We got light Twinkies and light ding-dongs. We got light coffee creamer. We got light bread and we got light beer. We got light everything. Well, you know what? Eat whatever you want, but just eat less of it and exercise. What about our faith? The light craze has even rolled over into the church. 
In his book on James, Kent Hughes tells of a church sign that he ran across once that said this. This is how they advertise. The Light Church, L-I-T-E. The Light Church. 24% fewer commitments. Home of the 7.5% tithe. 15-minute sermons. 45-minute worship services. We only have eight of the Ten Commandments you choose. We just use three of the spiritual laws. Everything you've wanted in a church, and you've guessed it, and less. We live in the day of the light diet, the light church. It's sad to say, isn't it, that that's pretty much a good description of what many people want in church today. I hear people talking about it. I run across folks all the time, and they say, we want less preaching. Don't be so preachy. When I was in college in Alabama, I did some, junior, some classes at a junior college in the summer, and I had a sociology class, and the professor said to me once, why do you got to be so preachy? Can you, let me say to a teacher, why do you got to be so teachy? Or to a baby, why do you got to cry? That's it, that's what I am, I'm a preacher. I hear people say all the time, we want less preaching. Then why do you go to church? Why do you go to church? We want less preaching. We want, we want less teaching. We don't want Sunday school. Sunday school is for children. No, it's not. Read your Bible. In fact, let me just put a plug in for Sunday school. If you're not coming to Sunday morning Bible study at 9.30, you're missing a great blessing. You're missing a great blessing. Our Sunday school classes are good. Our teachers are good. We've got men's classes, and we've got women's classes, and we've got a co-ed class, and we've got children's classes. And let me tell you something. Every one of the teachers takes it serious. And if you come here and you bring your kids here to Bible study, you're going to get something. You're going to get something. It's good. It's Q&A time. It's in-depth study time. It isn't little, it isn't little, little talks. We don't sit around in a circle and everybody take their turn reading from a pre-printed booklet. There's good Bible teaching time. So come to Sunday school. People want less commitment. I want to join the church, but I don't want to do anything. In our membership, in our membership packet, we ask when you join the church, Will you serve? In what capacity? Will you minimally serve in the nursery? We ask for commitment up front. People want less talking about sin. They want less requests of their time. A lot of people want a light church with a light faith. That's the issue that we're addressing in these few verses here in James this morning. In verses 14 through 17, James is, James tells us that there's no such thing as a light faith. You can't have a light faith, folks. You either have the whole calorie-saturated, spiritually weight-producing thing, or you don't have anything at all. Genuine faith produces healthy, spiritual Christians. In fact, if there's any area in your life where it's okay to be fat, you ought to be a fat, spiritual Christian because you overeat and overeat on the things of God. James's aim is to warn us of a bogus faith that makes no difference in the way that you live. He stated that back in chapter 1, verse 27. Remember that? Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's what he said in 127. Genuine faith is this. It's others-minded. Genuine faith is self-sacrificing. Genuine faith doesn't take into account what the cost is. It just sees an opportunity to minister and it's others-minded. That's what he says. And then in chapter 2, that's what he's working out for us. He's working out what genuine faith looks like. Now he tells us in crystal clear language what makes faith real. 
And He does so by showing us the relationship that faith has to works. There's probably not a more disputed argument in all of Christendom than the relationship of faith to works. And James doesn't seem to help us much with a, with a surface reading. In verses 14 through 17, James has two rhetorical questions. He gives a hypothetical illustration. And then in verse 17, he concludes with an outright statement. This morning, I want to explain the text, and then I want to offer you three statements about a genuine saving faith. If it's possible, uh, I'm sorry, it's possible to read James and then to read Paul in Romans or Galatians and not wonder what's going on between the two. It's not possible to read them and not wonder what's going on. You read James, then you go home this afternoon and you read James, 120 verses, you can read it in 30 minutes. Then you go home and you read the, the six chapters of Galatians and you're going to come away scratching your head saying what's going on here between James and Paul. Or you go home and you read the 16 chapters of Romans and you come back and you read the book of James and you'll be scratching your head saying what's going on between James and Paul. That's because a surface reading of James and Paul will lead anyone to believe that they're at odds with one another. If you just surfacely read them, you're going to say, see, there's a contradiction. I have a great uncle who's gone on into eternity now. I don't know where he went, to be honest with you. But I know that he used to tell me, this might be a good indicator, he used to tell me that whenever he would travel, he and a friend of his would take a Bible, and for a game, they would see who could find the most contradictions in the Bible in a night. Well, listen, if you like to play that game, then read Galatians and read James, and you'll have yourself a ball of a time. But you'll be wrong. But you'll be wrong. Okay? That's a surface reading. That's a childlike reading. That's not understanding the author or the audience or the intent. That's not understanding the purpose of the book. That's not understanding the whole of Scripture. Let me take up this issue with a little bit... I'm going to take up this issue in a little bit more detail in tonight's text. But for now, let me offer you just two simple solutions to the James and Paul problem. First... If we come to the Bible with the presupposition that the Bible is infallible, Word of God, then we must also conclude that infallibility means that there can be no contradictions. you understand when I use the term presupposition? It means that you have a predetermined belief when you come. In other words, when you come to the Bible, if you're the kind of person that reads the Bible and you just say, you know what, I just believe the Bible. I don't, you don't have to convince me of the authorship of the Bible. You don't have to convince me of the dating of the Bible. You don't have to convince me of any of those things. I just believe the Bible. I believe, I have a presupposition when I read the Bible that I believe that from the very beginning of Genesis to the very ending of Revelation, it is God writing through human authors. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's the living, breathing Word of God. There's no error in the Bible. That's the presupposition that I come with. Now, if you come with that same presupposition, and I believe that all, or at least almost all of you, I don't know, I don't know all of you that well, but I know the majority of you well enough to say that I believe that most of us here this morning believe that the Bible is an infallible, inerrant Word of God. It's trustworthy. It's true from Genesis to Revelation. The creation story, Jonah, the resurrection, the axe head floating, chariot going up to heaven, Enoch walking off with God, it's all true. It's the Word of God. It's true. Now, if that's the case, then when we come to a seemingly contradiction between James and Paul, rather than being critical and saying, Aha! I shouldn't trust the Bible. The problem's not with the Bible. The problem's with you and me. You see, if our presupposition is of infallibility, then there cannot be contradiction. Because contradiction necessarily means error. 
Contradiction means error. Make no mistake about it. If the Bible is contradictory, it has error. It's not contradictory, and it does not have error. So the first solution to the James and Paul problem is get a right presupposition. Come from the presupposition that you can trust the Bible. The second solution for understanding the James and Paul problem is to realize who they were writing to. You see, if we come with the presupposition that says, I trust the Word, so when I see something that causes a problem, the first thing I'm going to do is not say, aha, there's a problem with the Bible. The first thing I'm going to do is say, I must be missing something. That's what I do. When I see a problem in the Scripture, my first, pro my first question is not to say, untrustworthy, problem, can't trust it, piece of literature, written by men. It's got some good stuff in it, but it's not infallible. No, I come to the Scriptures and I say, infallible, inerrant, breathing, living, Word of God, no error in it, perfect and true. So if there's a problem, the problem must rest with me. So what's the problem, Charlie? Oh, I know what it is. As in reading any other piece of literature, we ask, who is the author? Who is the audience? What was the intent that they were writing? If you just ask those three questions, a great deal of the controversy between Paul and James will be cleared up. When Paul writes about works and faith, he's addressing an unbelieving audience who sees works as the means for achieving their salvation. When James writes about works and faith, he's writing to a congregation of confessors who believe that works meant little or nothing to their faith. Paul's writing to unbelievers who think that they can be saved by their works. James is writing to confessors who believe that works mean nothing. In essence, Paul says works will not bring you into faith in Christ. And James says faith in Christ will move you to works. That's how we understand the two authors. Listen to a couple of the clearest statements made about faith by Paul. In Romans 3.28, he said, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to those, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. But I want you to see, I want you to see another passage. I want you to see it with me. So mark your place in James and turn back toward the front of your New Testament to the book of Galatians. Turn past Hebrews and the Thessalonians, and you're going to come to those little books Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. I want you to see this very clear statement that Paul makes in Galatians, and then I want to bridge James and Paul together from Galatians. So go to Galatians first, chapter 3, verses 6 through 14. Chapter 3, verse 6. Now this is going to be very important for tonight's text too, because James is going to use Abraham for his proof text also. James chapter 3, verse 6, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned, counted, credited, that's what that word reckoned means, to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. The faither, that's the same word. Faith and belief are built from the same root word. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident 
for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit. How? Through faith. So what do we do with James and Paul? Well, let me give you what I think is the bridge text between James and Paul. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. I believe that this is the best connection between James and Paul. I believe that Galatians 5-6 is Paul's, is Paul's summation of he and James's theology. It's a, it's a, just, it's got both sides of it very well balanced. He says in Galatians 5-6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but what? Faith through love. Faith produces something. That's exactly what James is saying. Turn back to James chapter 2. That's what James is saying. In James 2.14, when he says, when he asks his second rhetorical question, do you know what a rhetorical question is? A rhetorical question is a question that is really a statement with an implied answer. In this case, the, the implied answer is no. Okay? So he's not asking a question as in to say, do you know where the where the store is, that's, see, that's an inquiry. He's saying, uh, gas has gotten cheap, has gotten expensive, hasn't it? See, do you hear, hasn't it? That's a question, see? But it's a rhetorical question. It's a statement. You made a statement in the question, there's not, the only replied answer from you is this, mm-hmm, sure has. See, that's a rhetorical question. Look at verse 14. It's two rhetorical questions. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? The answer, the implied answer is, it's of no use. So he gives you the answer in the question. What use is it? It's of no use. And then he asks his second question. Can that faith save him? He's asking, can a faith that produces no works in the life of a confessor, save him, and he has in mind here, I believe, on the day of judgment. Or in the words of Martin Luther, who reinterpreted this text, can that kind of faith save him? Can the kind of faith that produces no change in you save you? He's going to address that again tonight in verse 19, where he says, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons believe that in shudder. That's interesting when you see with that word shudder, it's the idea of like a, a fringed up cat. He's asking that. Is that kind of faith? Is that what saves you? Is intellectual knowledge what saves you? The obvious answer is no. That kind of faith cannot save you. Well, that leads, James, to, to raise a hypothetical argument in verses 15 and 16. Look at his hypothetical argument. Well, if a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, well, what use is that? And the answer would be, it's of no use at all. It's a hypothetical. James is addressing the inconsistency of what a person claims to be versus what a person actually does and says. What their actions confess about them. That they don't measure up to the profession that you might have. That's what he's saying. He's saying that you're the kind of person that you pray for the poor, but you don't do anything for the poor. You pray for the church to grow, but you do nothing for the church to grow. You pray for there to be peace, but you don't do anything to bring about peace. 
That's what he has in mind. See, it's not just this idea of giving somebody food or clothing. It's the idea that this, you pray for something to come about, but you do nothing to make it come about. You're the kind of person that you, you want to see great things happen, but it's not going to cost you anything because you're not going to do anything to see it happen. Oh God, give us the money that we need for the budget, but you don't give to the budget. Oh God, let there be a great influx of people in the church, but you don't do anything to bring any folks in the church. Oh God, let Sunday school grow, but you don't come to Sunday school. Oh God, let there be peace, 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 but you don't do anything to bring about peace. That's the whole point that he's making. See, it's a principle. The principle is, is that you're inconsistent. You say that you want something, but you do nothing for it. It's like, again, let's go back to the issue of people losing weight. Listen, I've gained and lost enough weight that there ought to be a, a cone of me. This is what I found. When I want to lose weight, when I really want to lose weight, then I eat right and I exercise. I have somewhat of a compulsive personality. See, I, I'm not the kind of person that can go out and just run a mile or two. I'm the kind of guy that, well, if I'm going to run, I'm going to run 40 miles a week. You know, and if I'm going to eat right, I'm going to eat right. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to count the calories and my wife just gets, she gets crazy by it, you know. Oh, not again. I, she, sometimes I think she thinks I'd ever have you fat them like that. Well, see, when I get fed up with my weight, I do something about it. When you get fed up with not being who you confess to be, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, something gets done about it. The problem is, is that too many people become comfortable in their laissez-faire, light faith selves. I heard, um, I was watching um, this, this program about capturing criminals last night, and, and one man that was interviewed, uh, he knew of a crime that had been committed, and, and he knew that somebody had done it, and he made this comment. He said he, he wanted to make things right so he'd go to heaven when he died. I mean, got news for you. You can rat on all the criminals that you want. That ain't going to get you to heaven when you die. You can want that all you want. That's not going to get you to heaven when you die. See, we have this idea that if I, I just want to do just enough to get to heaven when I die. I want a light faith. I don't want it to cost me much. I don't want it to impact my life much. I don't want it to inconvenience me much. I don't want it to put any restraints upon me. I don't want any requirements of me. Don't ask me to come to anything. Don't ask me to commit to anything. Don't ask me to serve anywhere. I just want a light faith. Just enough to know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and my family's going to think that I went to heaven too. That's the whole issue that James is addressing here. If that's what you want, then you're not, you don't have a saving faith. Because there's no such thing as a light faith. Genuine faith changes the way that you deal with people. James isn't the only one to say that. The Apostle John, in his short epistle, he wrote in 1 John 3, 17 and 18, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let, not let, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. What he's saying is, is that genuine faith gets involved in people's lives. It does something to bring about the goodness and greatness of God. The point of both authors of a genuine faith produces compassion and action is seen in, the, in an old English preacher. He's riding along on horseback and he comes upon a friend whose horse had accidentally been killed upon the ride. And there's a crowd of people that are all standing around and they're all talking about how sorry they are that this happened. How they can't believe that this happened. How bad it is that this happened. Oh brother, this is bad that it happened to you. We're going to pray for you. And the old preacher stopped. He got off of his horse. He reached into his pocket and he said, I'm five dollars sorry. How sorry are you? 
It's easy to talk to somebody and say, oh, it's terrible what's happening. Oh, it's bad what's going on. You see, but the Bible says that genuine faith produces you to say, this is how sorry I am about it. I'm going to do something about it. James's whole point is that genuine faith produces action. Sometimes the action is taking care of another believer. As in James's hypothetical illustration right here in our text. Sometimes the action is taking care of an unbeliever. As in the illustration Jesus gave about a good Samaritan. Sometimes, in fact, usually, the action is simply keeping God's commands. You know what? That's the greatest action that you and I can do. If you can't do anything else, then start there. Even the difficult commands. Jesus Himself made this unequivocally clear in the Gospel of John when He said in John 14, 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. That's what He said. Don't tell me that you love me and then you don't keep my commandments. You don't even make an effort to. There's no energy put into it. There's no thought put into it. Again, he said it in chapter 15, verse 10 of John's gospel. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. It's very simple. If we have faith in Christ, then we will keep the commandments of God. Now listen, faith in Christ means that we're no longer free to do what we think is right and believe what we feel is right. We have this tendency to think that I'm only bound to do what I think is right. We have this tendency that says, you know what? I don't think that's right, so I don't got to do it. Well, wait a second, wait a second. Submission does not come into play until there's disagreement. When the Bible talks about us submitting to the Word of God... What it implies there is there's some things in the Word of God that I don't necessarily agree with, but because the Word of God says it is to be this way, I humble myself and submit to it. It's the same way it works in courage. There cannot be courage unless there's fear present. If somebody doesn't have any fear, there's either no danger or they're stupid. It's not courage. There's courage when there's fear. There's submission when there's disagreement. As confessing Christians, we're bound to the Word of God. What are we bound to, Pastor? What are the kind of things that we're bound to? We're bound to seek one another's good. Do you know that? We are bound to seek one another's good. We're bound to forgive others who sin against us. We just said this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us a stay our daily bread. And what? And forgive us our debts as we what? We are bound to be forgivers. We're bound to be forgivers. We're bound to be honest. You shall not bear false witness. We're bound to not steal. We're bound to be happy with what we've got. You shall not covet. We're bound to be sexually pure. You shall not commit adultery. We are bound to worship God. You shall have no other gods before you. you shall, we're bound to not have any idols in our life. We're bound to be careful about how we take God's name. We're bound to these things. We're bound... Listen to this. Jesus raised the bar even higher. We are bound to even love our enemies and wage war against our fleshly desires. We are bound to do these things. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the whole point that James is making. Genuine faith produces a change in your action and your behavior. He's going to make that point even clearer tonight. That leads James to make another outright statement in verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. One commentator said that we are a bird and you have Faith and works. 
as its wings. I'm not sure if I like the illustration or not, but it certainly paints an accurate picture, doesn't it? We're not lifted by works. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith, not faith alone, but faith in Christ alone. And that produces works in us. I want to spend the rest of my time this morning, just a few minutes, I want to talk about what is genuine saving faith. I want to give you three facts about it. Here they are. Fact number one of saving faith, saving faith expresses knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. There is no saving faith outside of knowledge in the person of Jesus Christ. A person might know the explicative Jesus and nothing at all more. To them, that might not be nothing but a cuss word or what you say when you stomp your toe. It really bothers me to hear somebody say Jesus' name in anything other than a proper context. Does it bother you? It's taking God's name in vain when you do that. Or to say God. I, I tell you, it bothers me when people do that. It's taking God's name in vain. To take God's name in vain means to use it thoughtlessly. It means to not use it in worship. Anything other than the proper context of reverence, worship, teaching, instruction, quoting scripture, anything in the use of God's name other than that, you're breaking the third commandment. Make no mistake about it. So when the Bible talks about knowing Jesus, it's not about knowing the name of Jesus. It's about knowing the person of Jesus. How do we get to know the person of Jesus? We get to know them from Scripture. We learn in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, that he was born of a virgin. We learn that he lived a sinless life in 1 Peter 2.22. We learn that he was crucified for sinners in Romans 5.8. We learn that He rose from the dead from Luke 24. We learn that He's ascended into heaven in Acts 1. We learn that He's coming again in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. It's knowing a per the person of Jesus Christ. Every week someone knocks on your door. Just about every week somebody knocks on your door. What do they knock on your door for? They want to come in and maybe they want to come in and check a gas line. Maybe they want to sell you something from the school. I mean, the school's always using our children to peddle their stuff. That's another topic. Whatever it is, they knock on your door, right? They want to knock on your door and come in. But we have a problem letting complete strangers come in, don't we? I mean, we've got to know something about somebody before we let them come into our house, right? Especially in this day and age. Knowledge, you see, knowledge about someone gives trust. We need to know Jesus Christ. You need to know Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you something. That's why we choose hymns that we sing at this church. And the choruses that we sing, the purpose of them are to instruct you. That's what Paul said. We are to instruct one another with hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. They are to be instructive, like the ones that we sang this morning. That's why we catechize our children, so they can learn about Jesus Christ, and we can learn about Him. That's why we do the catechism questions. That's why the Word of God is to be read so that we can know who Jesus Christ is. Let me ask you this question this morning. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know Him? Do you have a personal knowledge of Jesus as your Savior? Do you have a true faith? Or do you have a light faith? Do you know about Him? A second fact about saving faith is not only that you know Jesus Christ, saving faith believes the things that Jesus said and did are true. Saving faith believes that the things that Jesus said and did are true. When, Paul, when James talks about faith, can that kind of faith save him? It's a kind of faith that knows who Jesus is and it believes that the things that Jesus said are true. There's two ways that you can do this. How do you know that these things are true? How do you get to know them? Two ways. The simplest way is, is what we know from the account of others. 
I don't know about you, but I didn't come to faith in Christ because I read a Bible. Now, I know that there were some of you that did read the Bible, and that's how you came to faith in Christ. And that happens, and that's that's the greatest way for it to happen. You get the unadulterated, pure, first-hand knowledge of God and His Word. That's the best way. But that's not the typical way that we come to faith in Christ. Most of us come to faith in Christ because somebody talked to us about Christ. Somebody invited us to church. We heard a preacher preach about Christ. We heard a Sunday school teacher talk about Christ. Grandmother talked about Christ. Mother and father talked about Christ. Neighbors talked about Christ. Friends talk about Christ. That's how we get to know about the things of Christ. That's how we learn the stories of Christ. Let me tell you something. With familiarity comes belief. So we learn about the things of Christ and to believe the things of Christ by hearing them. It's important for the children to be in church. You know what? They can't get anything in children's church better than they can get in regular church. To hear the Psalms, to see their parents. There's nothing better for a little boy than to see his daddy bow his head and pray. There's nothing better for children than to see adults come up and confess sin. There's nothing better than for the whole body of Christ to see believers baptized and to hear the Word of God preached and taught and to look around and see Bibles open on the laps and looking into the text. It communicates. It communicates that if I want to know about God, I ought to look in my Bible. This is where the message comes from. We need to learn about... Faith is knowing about Jesus. Faith is believing in the things of Jesus that they're true. A third fact about saving faith is that saving faith trusts in what Christ did as your acceptance before God. Now, here's where we get into a little bit of trouble. When the Bible says that we're saved by faith, it's not faith that saves you. Make no mistake about it. Let me say that again. Faith saves no one. Let me let that pause for a second. Let me make you get uncomfortable for a minute. Faith saves no one. You had faith in your car this morning. You started it up and drove to church. You got faith in that pew right now. You're sitting in it and it's holding you up. Faith doesn't save you. My, uh, George Michael sang a song about faith. Certainly he didn't believe in Christ. From what little I know about him, decadent. Faith saves no one. It's faith in Christ. Christ is the Savior. It's faith in what Christ did that saves you. Faith is the channel in which the righteousness of Christ flows through. That's what makes you acceptable before God. That's what saves sinners. It's faith. It's the object of your faith, not faith itself. Saving faith is reliance on the righteousness of Christ as the basis of your acceptance by a holy God. Now, there are a lot of people who agree that sinners are saved by grace, but they still have this lingering idea that God is going to calculate their works somehow into their salvation. I can't tell you the number of people that say to me, well, you know what, I believe in Christ, and, and I, and, but I just don't know. I don't think anyone can really know that they're saved. How pitiful are you? If you believe in Christ and you know that you're a sinner and you trust in what Christ did and you love the person and the work of Jesus Christ, my Bible says you are saved. Now let me tell you why they don't have trouble with that. I'll tell you why they have trouble with that. Because there's so many people whom they know who confess to have faith in Christ and who see the poor and say, I'll pray for you. And who see those who are in need and say, I'll pray for you. And they, and they hear them gossip about their neighbor. And they hear them curse. And they see them drunk. And they watch them do things that are immoral and godless and anything but Christian. But when you spark up a conversation about faith, oh, I'm a Christian. 
I'm a Christian. I was saved at vacation Bible school. Oh, I'm a Christian. I joined the church 20 years ago. You see, so their conclusion, see, they have a right observation but a wrong conclusion. Their right observation is, is they don't have a right kind of faith. That's a light, L-I-T-E, faith. But the observation is not that you can't know that you're saved. The conclusion is not that you can't know that you're saved. The conclusion should be this. That kind of faith doesn't save. The conclusion should be this. You know what? If that's your faith, then maybe you're not saved. Because the Bible says that genuine saving faith produces a new creation. I was asked just this last week, well, what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean? Well, the best example comes from 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he's a what? A new creation. That goes pretty good with born again, doesn't it? Born again meaning new creation. And then he goes on to say what? The old things have passed away. And behold, new things have come. Why is that? Because he's been born again. And faith produces change. I'll close this morning by asking you this. What kind of faith do you have? You got a light faith that's producing very little change in your life? What's James say about that kind of faith? He says that kind of faith, even faith, if it has no works, is dead. Dead. What are the works that give evidence of the faith in your life? Works will not justify you in one sense. Works will not save you in any sense. But works are the evidence that you don't have a light faith. So let me ask you this morning, what kind of faith do you have? Do you have a light faith? Or do you have the whole calorie-laden, sweet-tasting thing that's producing in you a weighty faith, changing the way that you live and act? That's a saving faith. If you don't have a saving faith, how do you receive it? My Bible says this, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Genuine saving faith affects your head and your heart. It says, with your mouth you confess the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your head, see? You confess it because you know it to be true. And with your heart you believe that God raised him from the dead. There's the heart. It affects the head and the heart. Has your head been affected but not your heart? Has your head and your heart been affected? If it's not, then today, repent and believe upon Christ. Move it from your head to your heart and receive a heavy faith, not a light faith.